I think there are many, many more practitioners today than there ever were when I was a medical student touting food as a very important preventative and curative measure for health. Focusing on a whole foods, plant-based diet in my own life perfectly aligns with what I do with my patients. Because I think that, especially also with gastroenterology, so much of gastroenterology is indeed diet. Hello and welcome back to the Plant-Based News Podcast, the show where we bring you the latest vegan news, ethical views and much more. I'm your host Robbie Lockie and today I have a very special guest with me. She is a gastroenterologist, an author and an expert on the role of inflammation, diet and disease. Her name is Dr. Shilpa Ravella and she has just published a fascinating book called A Silent Fire, the story of inflammation, diet and disease. Dr. Ravella is also a vegan herself and an advocate for plant-based nutrition. As always, if you like this episode, please don't forget to comment, like and share. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please go and leave us a review. It really helps get the message out there. Let's get to the episode. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Ravella. Great to have you here and hear a bit of your story. Thank you so much for having me here. My absolute pleasure. Before we talk about all your incredible work that you've done in recent times, as always, I like to ask my guests this first question, which is how did you discover the plant-based or vegan lifestyle? Where did that all begin for you? Well, I was a vegetarian for quite some time, even as a teenager. And I really started getting more into a whole foods plant-based lifestyle when I started getting into my medical training especially my gastroenterology training, where I was learning so much about how food affects the gut microbiome or the mass of microbes in our guts and how much food can actually affect health and disease down the line. So as I advanced through my medical training, I learned a lot more about food and health. And I started changing my own diet and my own lifestyle at that time. And so what what was it like? You obviously said you went from vegetarian to vegan, but explain a little bit about the community and the people that were around you at the time. How long ago was this? Because obviously the world is evolving a lot, but there's still a lot of backlash or negativity towards the lifestyle. There's There's this sort of pervading narrative that humans must eat meat for protein, that we must have dairy for calcium. And we're often often told, you know, please don't shove your belief system down my throats when the reality is as young people in most parts of the world, you know, animal flesh and you know milk and cheese etc is something that is in many ways forced upon us as children we don't really have a choice but what was the community around you like at the time when you were making these changes and were people supportive of uh, of these shifts in you well uh, that's a great question and i think when i went vegetarian that was when i was a teenager so this was the 1990s and getting closer to 2000 and there were very very few vegetarians at that time in my high school i grew up in a small town in indiana so we had a very meat and potatoes type of lifestyle especially when i was going out with friends and such we'd go to fast food restaurants and the culture was very much so you know you had some animal products in the diet i uh found it hard to find community in that setting i would eat food at home that was more uh, vegetarian but it was it was tough when going out with friends as a teenager and around 2010 when i was in my gastroenterology fellowship that was also a time when it, it actually was quite quite difficult to find substantial community for for following a whole foods plant-based lifestyle so i made this change that i really believed in and i was learning a lot online and i think just going online and reading journals and and looking what others were doing around the country was immensely helpful and and uh, motivating as well. And when it came to the sort of ethical uh, cross section of diet as well, was there you know was that a, a part of your your evolution in this direction? Because obviously there's a big difference between veganism, the philosophy, which is obviously 
a move towards excluding animal products, mostly for ethical reasons. But then there's obviously you mentioned a whole food plant-based diet. You said you went vegetarian as a teenager. So I wonder, was there a connection with animals there and a, and a relationship that you had fostered and, and a realization as a young person, which is quite, which is quite rare and, and, and quite beautiful? There was absolutely a connection with animals. And I, I think uh, one of the biggest things today is just factory farming and all of the harm that sentient beings have to undergo. And, and all the cruelty. And, and I think that was one of the big motivators when I was a teenager. But as, as I grew older, that wasn't the only motivator. I think also I learned a lot about how, how food affects our health, our own health, and also the health of our planet as well. So all of these different factors coalesced. And now we are seeing that food can play a direct part in ecological disasters like climate change, pandemics, and so we only have more and more reason to really focus on those whole plant foods in, in our diet. You obviously chose a very specific part uh, of medicine, a specific discipline, kind of gastroenterology, which is a huge world. You know, the, the, the gut, I often have fascinating conversations with my friend, Dr. Alan Desmond, an amazing uh, gastroenterologist here in the UK. And we have lots of kind of geeky conversations uh, about the gut and it's a really incredible world. And I'd love to learn a little bit about your background and how you got involved in medicine, but also why you chose this discipline specifically. Well, I trained as a general gastroenterologist initially. I saw all kinds of GI patients, you know, patients with inflammatory bowel disease, celiac disease, irritable bowel syndrome. I do colonoscopies and upper endoscopies. And then for seven years of my career, I also, I also took care of patients who had undergone intestinal and multivisceral transplantation. And I had a lot of patients just coming into my office asking about food. What kinds of foods should I be eating to maintain my health? And particularly also about the question of inflammation. Are there certain types of foods that can help to prevent or treat or reverse inflammation? And I became very interested in separating the science the hard science from the fallacies. It's interesting, and but why? But why the gut specifically? Like gut, there's obviously so many parts to the body. What was it about the gut that drew you to that type of medicine? Well, when I first started out in gastroenterology, I actually loved the mix of being able to see patients in clinic and also being able to do procedures. As I learned more about this field, I, I just found so many different fascinating aspects, and the gut microbiome to me was very interesting because the gut microbiome is is actually like a separate organ inside of our bodies and it affects all kinds of disease states and it keeps us healthy as well so that uh, that was a big part of of uh, gastroenterology for me that i was very motivated by trillions of bacteria viruses and fungi live on or inside of us and maintaining a good balanced relationship with them is to our advantage together they form the gut microbiome a rich ecosystem that performs a variety of functions in our bodies. The bacteria in our guts can break down food the body can't digest, produce important nutrients, regulate the immune system, and protect against harmful germs. We don't yet have the blueprint for exactly which good bacteria a robust gut needs, but we do know that it's important for a healthy microbiome to have a variety of bacterial species. Many factors affect our microbiomes, including our environment, medications like antibiotics, and even whether we were delivered by C-section or not. Diet, too, is emerging as one of the leading influences on the health of our guts. And while we can't control all these factors, we can manipulate the balance of our microbes by paying attention to what we eat. 
Mm, it's a fascinating world. So I've read that, and I don't know if this is true or not, uh, that when you count the number of cells in the body, including bacterial cells, we are only 10% human and the rest is bacteria. So are we actually bacteria wearing a human suit? <laughs> you can somewhat put it that way, certainly. Um, I think what we do have to realize is that we we don't have the traditional boundaries that we kind of have defined ourselves with for a very long time. When we look at the bacteria that live inside of us, that live on top of us, that live around us, and when we look at the fact that our immune cells and other cells in our body are having conversations with these bacteria at all hours of the day, we are not perfectly circumscribed human beings. These bacteria shape us in so many different ways. And this is a continually evolving thing. You know, if you're on vacation and say you eat a very poor diet for a couple of weeks and then you come back and get back into your routine, these bacteria will respond to that. And so we are slowly realizing that we are living with these symbiotic creatures that can actually help us. It's fascinating. I think we're carrying about two and a half kilograms of bacteria in our gut at all times, aren't we? So it is, it's a substantial amount of organisms and many have described it as a bit of a garden, as a sort of like a garden that grows uh, within our microbiome. And Dr. Desmond and I have laughed about how people don't often think about the fact that the gut is on the outside of the body, that we have two holes in and out, and that this, this um, kind of pipe that runs through our body where we extract nutrients is on the outside. And this microbiome protects us really in many ways from the outside world, as well as you say, informing all these decisions and this com conversation going on. But just to dive into the cell, for example, a, you know, a, a human cell, we have a, a mitochondria that exists within the human cell. And isn't it fascinating, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the mitochondria within the mammalian cell is a primordial or an ancient form of bacteria or a part of a bacterium. Is that correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so it really shows that we, from the very beginning of our evolution, that bacterium have been really played a primary role in our in our entire i guess inception as creatures absolutely and and it's really just going back to to interacting with those germs to interacting with the germs that have evolved alongside of human beings that that is uh, the important thing today for us and what impact do you think has this modern lifestyle had on our bodies as the centuries have rolled on we've become more and more clinical and sterile sterilizing our food you know, washing absolutely everything, you know, we've got all these modern soaps and chemicals that we use. What effect is that having on a microbiome as well as the pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, antimicrobials that are being sprayed on our, our crops and the foods that we eat every day? I think it's been harmful, you know, from the moment we are born until we pass away, we do need to be interacting with the right quantity and quality of microbes. And now we're, you know, most of us live in areas with lots of concrete and grass. We don't get enough exposure to nature. And that's one of the biggest things as well for health is just to be out in nature and, and to be interacting with those types of microbes that evolve alongside humans. We need to be doing this all throughout our lives, especially for kids, this is, this is crucial because in, the first, in those first few years, this is what will train our immune systems not to overreact to harmless particles and to also react appropriately to germs. So these microbes, when they're having conversations with the immune cells, they are actually training your immune system to respond appropriately. And, and that is critical in childhood and also as adults, because as we know, as we get older and as we live in a world fraught with pandemics and epidemics, we need to boost our immunity and we also need to make sure that we are not overreacting to harmless material because allergies are also on the rise. 
Just to take a small break from the episode and to let you know that today's episode is kindly supported by our friends over at Compliment. There's really big news. Compliment's massive Plantapalooza online festival returns again this October, featuring some of the biggest experts in longevity and plant-based health, including the wonderful Dan Butner. Dan recently did a show on Netflix called Live to 100, Secrets of the Blue Zones. You must watch it. It's incredible. There's also Chris Carr, Rip Esselstyn, Carly Bodrog, and much more. Plus, you'll get huge discounts of up to 51% off Compliment Nutrients. Claim your free online festival ticket today at lovecompliment.com forward slash PBN and get instant access to longevity guides and amazing meal plans, plus Compliment discounts and exclusive access once the event begins. That's compliment.com forward slash PBN for your free ticket to Plantapalooza. Let's get back to the episode. Dietary fiber from foods like fruits, vegetables, nuts, legumes, and whole grains is the best fuel for gut bacteria. When bacteria digest fiber, they produce short-chain fatty acids that nourish the gut barrier, improve immune function, and can help prevent inflammation, which reduces the risk of cancer. And the more fiber you ingest, the more fiber-digesting bacteria colonize your gut. In a recent study, scientists exchanged the regular high-fiber diets of a group of rural South Africans with the high-fat, meat-heavy diets of a group of African-Americans. After just two weeks on the high-fat, low-fiber, Western-style diet, the rural African group showed increased inflammation of the colon as well as a decrease of butyrate. That's a short-chain fatty acid thought to lower risk of colon cancer. Meanwhile, the group that switched to a high-fiber, low-fat diet had the opposite result. So what goes wrong with our gut bacteria when we eat low-fiber processed foods? Lower fiber means less fuel for the gut bacteria, essentially starving them until they die off. This results in less diversity and hungry bacteria. In fact, some can even start to feed on the mucus lining. We also know that specific foods can affect gut bacteria. In one recent microbiome study, scientists found that fruits, vegetables, tea, coffee, red wine, and dark chocolate were correlated with increased bacterial diversity. These foods contain polyphenols, which are naturally occurring antioxidant compounds. On the other hand, Foods high in dairy fat, like whole milk, and sugar-sweetened sodas were correlated with decreased diversity. One of the areas that you focus on is inflammation. First of all, what is inflammation? Uh, Why does it matter to our health? And how is it related to chronic disease such as diabetes, heart disease, cancer, autoimmune disorders? So inflammation is actually an ancestral force and it evolved to protect us from things like pathogens and poisons and traumas. So it was actually a a, uh, benevolent force and we need some inflammation in the body. When I'm speaking of acute inflammation, for example, if you you stub your toe on a table and you see redness, heat, swelling, and pain, those are the four cardinal signs of inflammation. And there's a fifth sign as well, which is loss of function. But those signs are a manifestation of what's going on inside of our bodies. Our blood flow increases, blood vessels dilate, fluid and protein leak out of those vessels and put painful pressure on nerve endings. What we see as well is that when we have too much inflammation in the body, chronic inflammation and an excess of inflammation, we can see things like autoimmunity. For example, 
uh, things like inflammatory bowel disease or rheumatoid arthritis. And this is what we call the biological price of inflammation. We've evolved these robust immune responses in order to survive, but there is a price to pay for that. Now, what we're seeing today is that this biological price is far more pervasive than we've ever imagined, because we know that inflammation of some type, whether it's low level or overt, is tied to the majority of our modern chronic disorders. So everything from heart disease and cancer to obesity, diabetes, neurodegenerative disorders, some psychiatric disorders. We know that the majority of individuals today in the Western world are inflamed. On a biological level, like if we zoom into, let's get geeky in the cellular level, what exactly is happening in an inflammatory process? Why is inflammation causing damage to the cells and tissues of the body? What is the, you know, if you could paint a picture or create an analogy, what is actually happening within the body when this is occurring to excess? Sure. Well, it can actually help and it can heal. So it, it, it can certainly disrupt tissue structures and organs, and it really depends on the disease process. You know, for example, when you see inflammatory bowel disease, you can actually see overt inflammation in the colon. You can see uh, the scarring in the colon. You can see ulcers and redness, and this can disrupt the, the uh, function of the organ. So patients will come in with all kinds of abdominal issues, and they will have malabsorption, for example. So depending on where the inflammation is, or if it's body-wide, you can have different symptoms and signs. And inflammation can certainly disrupt tissue function. But if you have a chronic wound, for example, the inflammation is actually trying to heal as well. So inflammation has sort of a yin-yang to it. It's actually trying to secrete, you know, you have cells secreting uh, growth factors, and you have healing processes that go on in a chronic wound. So when it gets out of hand, it kind of becomes more destructive in its nature and causes tissue damage. Is that anywhere? So that is that directly related to the immune response? So the immune system, the immune cells, the cytokines and the autophages and the all these white blood cells, they begin to essentially attack the body itself. Right. So you have all different kinds of immune cells involved in inflammation and you have two arms of the immune system, the innate immune system and the adaptive immune system. And the innate immune system is sort of your first line of defense. So you see cells like macrophages and neutrophils and all other types of cells in the innate immune response. You know, for example, when you stub your toe and then, and then you also see areas of chronic inflammation and you can see all different kinds of immune cells as well. You can see T cells, you can see uh, macrophages again, chronic inflammation. And what we see is that we have, we have many, many different types of cells involved in inflammation. So it isn't just one type of cell, one particular cell. And those cells secrete proteins, you know, like cytokines and all kinds of messengers. So it's a very complex heterogeneous process going on inside of our bodies. Sounds like some kind of internal warfare. <laughs> it, it, it somewhat is, yes. Yeah, um, I think when I was learning about how COVID affects the lungs uh, and how when the virus goes a little haywire, this, you get a cytokine storm. And I was imagining the sort of warfare between the you know the virus and the body, and you know there are parts of the body that get caught in the crossfire. And well, I guess what I'm hearing from you is that we, we can measure inflammation by the volume of these immune cells and how effective they are is really uh, based on how the body reacts to certain stimuli. But let's talk about diet for a sec, because obviously, you know, diet does influence inflammation in some way, but how does it actually work? What kind of foods can trigger or reduce inflammation? Uh, and what are some of the benefits specifically of like a plant-based diet, for example, a whole food plant-based diet in actually lowering inflammation? Diet is incredibly important for controlling inflammation, for preventing the inflammation 
from occurring in the first place. And I think one of the most important things that I see is that we have a deficiency of one of our most anti-inflammatory nutrients in America and in the UK, 90 to 95% of adults fail to meet even the recommended daily allowances of fiber. And fiber can manipulate all arms of our immune system. It is one of the most anti-inflammatory nutrients that we can consume. And it is fuel for our gut microbiome. Our gut microbes can digest fiber and create wonderful compounds like short-chain fatty acids that are anti-inflammatory. And they travel in our gut, but also around our body and have all kinds of anti-inflammatory effects around the body. Fiber can affect inflammation directly or indirectly through the microbiome. So I think that's one of the most important things is that we, we lack the presence of all of these whole plant foods that are so chock full of fiber and different types of plants have different types of fibers. When you look at seaweed, for example, seaweed has fibers that are just unknown in terrestrial plants. So we really need to be eating a diversity of plant foods as well. And the diversity of plant foods is, is another point that is very important because we have studies that show that simply by changing the diversity of your diet, of the plant foods in your diet, you can dampen inflammation. So it's not only about the quantity of these plant foods, but also about the diversity. And those two things are critical for designing an anti-inflammatory microbiome and for dampening inflammation all throughout the body. You mentioned uh, fiber there and, and how most people are not getting anywhere near enough. I recently came across inulin, a, a soluble fiber that uh, you can add to water. How effective is, is it to the microbiome to add something as simple as that, a teaspoon of you know, inulin dissolved into, uh, into water and having that every day? Obviously, if you're eating a healthy diet, you're going to be getting fiber. But if you have a soluble fiber powder like that and you're adding it to water and drinking it, is it something that could be seen as a, as a good starting point to making a shift towards a higher fiber diet? I get a lot of questions about this sometimes in my clinics and all the evidence that we have to date really does support getting your fiber from the whole plant foods as opposed to the supplements. So with the fiber supplements, you know, the inulin or the psyllium or another supplement, I use that more in disease rather than in health. For the average healthy person, I really encourage them to try to get their fiber from the whole plant foods if they can. You know, if they're having gastrointestinal issues, if they're just starting out and wanting to have their bodies adapt to taking in more fiber, that's when I will try some of those supplements. But in general, I really focus on the whole foods. How food is prepared also matters. Minimally processed, fresh foods generally have more fiber and provide better fuel. So lightly steamed, sautéed, or raw vegetables are typically more beneficial than fried dishes. There are also ways of preparing food that can actually introduce good bacteria, also known as probiotics, into your gut. Fermented foods are teeming with helpful probiotic bacteria, like lactobacillus and bifidobacteria. Originally used as a way of preserving foods before the invention of refrigeration, Fermentation remains a traditional practice all over the world. Foods like kimchi, sauerkraut, tempeh, and kombucha provide variety and vitality to our diets. Yogurt is another fermented food that can introduce helpful bacteria into our guts. That doesn't necessarily mean that all yogurt is good for us, though. Brands with too much sugar and not enough bacteria may not actually help. These are just general guidelines. More research is needed before we fully understand exactly how any of these foods interact with our microbiomes. We see positive correlations, but the insides of our guts are difficult places to make direct observations. 
While we're only beginning to explore the vast wilderness inside our guts, we already have a glimpse of how crucial our microbiomes are for digestive health. The great news is, we have the power to fire up the bacteria in our bellies. Fill up on fibers, fresh and fermented foods, and you can trust your gut to keep you going strong. Whole food plant-based diets is, uh, is definitely a good starting point. I guess a lot of people struggle if they don't have any kind of culinary skills and sometimes a plant-based diet can be a little overwhelming because I think at the end of the day most people are I guess attuned to an omnivorous diet which often is a, a piece of meat and a couple of vegetables on a plate much easier isn't it and much more it's a simpler way to eat obviously but a plant-based diet which is rich in, in in our diversity of plants as you say but it can also be intimidating just because of the different options and i think when people go to a supermarket and they don't know and understand this lifestyle they don't know where to begin they don't know where they should start but i'm interested in a, a specific an ailment or a issue with the gut which is often talked about as leaky gut and you know this issues with the with the tight junctions could you talk a little bit about this subject how like widespread is leaky gut and do you think there is any connection or correlation between our diets uh, and potentially some of these chemicals and like glyphosate and things that are being sprayed onto our food and especially wheat which is wheat is absolutely drenched in the stuff is there any new science or data that suggests that the way our food is being made is having an effect on the lining of our gut and of course our, our microbiome itself? I think absolutely how we've transformed our modern foods plays a huge part in the effects upon our microbiome. And when we talk about leaky gut, you know, when you look at leaky gut in and of itself, we have to also realize that a portion of that is physiological. So leaky gut isn't all pathological, just like inflammation. I mean, inflammation in our body, we don't want to eradicate it. We have at all times a you know, a, a low level inflammation going on in our bodies, even healthy individuals. So with leaky gut, it can be both a cause and a consequence of inflammation. There are certainly disease associations. And when you look at what happens with the gut microbiome, it's a circular relationship. If we have poor environmental factors, be that pesticides, toxins, a poor diet, you know, if we're ingesting a poor diet, that can change not only the species in our gut, but also their behaviors. They encroach closer to the gut lining and they dine on the gut lining as opposed to what they're supposed to be dining on, which is which is a fiber and other nutrients. And then, uh, you know, those tight junctions can, can give way as well and let more food antigens, toxins, other unwanted elements in, into the bloodstream. And it's it's a very circular relationship because it's not a situation where you have one starting point or a snapshot of an individual where you can say this person has leaky gut at this moment and that's pathologic because when we do things like exercise uh, if, if you have a glass of wine you know that can cause leaky gut and in some cases leaky gut is a physiologic response that evolves so that our immune systems can sample material can learn from what's in the outside environment so absolutely there is a pathologic and a physiologic element to leaky gut that's so fascinating. So, so it's a it's it's part of the process of our body uh, about when it gets out of control or it becomes unmanageable. A bit like the immune response, it's all about balance and it's all about equilibrium. Right. If things go out of whack or become too intense, the body has to react accordingly. And eating the right foods is about helping to create that equilibrium, which which is what it's all about. I'd love to hear a little bit about your experience as a as a vegan doctor in a non vegan medical system. 
how do you balance your vegan values with your professional obligations? Because obviously, <laughs> any time in the medical world, and you'll find doctors often recommending steak and uh, animal products or cheese and milk or yogurt for, for calcium. How has it been in your practice and the years that you've practiced with your peers and, and your kind of beliefs about what we should and shouldn't be eating? Well, I think finding food at conferences sometimes still is tough. <laughs> so that's, that's one thing. You know, honestly, over the years, over the years since I first started uh, medical school and all through the years of my attending years, you know, these past couple of decades, I think there's been a huge transformation in, in the importance given to the role of food and lifestyle. And I think there are many, many more practitioners today than there ever were when I was a medical student touting food as a very important preventative and curative measure for health. And I think that focusing on a whole foods, plant-based diet in my own life perfectly aligns with what I do with my patients. Because I think that, especially also with gastroenterology, so much of gastroenterology is indeed diet. And we have our exclusionary diets, of course, for various disorders, but we have so much of a role for whole foods, plant-based diet, either an entire whole foods, plant-based diet or mostly whole foods, plant-based. Patients do benefit and patients are benefiting from this type of diet. And, and that's something that we cannot ignore. So we have anecdotal evidence coming from all different specialties, including the, and also the primary care setting. And we have an evidence base that is just growing. We have not only all of the nutrition science that we have to date, but also microbiome science, which is growing. We have history and evolution teaching us as well. All of these factors are, are important in, in considering how to treat a patient. So when we are looking at the medical and surgical treatments, and there are fantastic medical and surgical treatments, we must also look at these dietary and lifestyle factors as well. So we want to use the medical and surgical treatments appropriately, not inappropriately, and then always be using the adjunctive diet and lifestyle treatments. So I feel like my personal uh, lifestyle with whole foods, plant-based diets al aligns pretty well with the professional one. And the other thing I want to mention too, is that with the modern world, we are not only seeing more medical and surgical advances. Uh, you know, we are seeing climate change, we are seeing pandemics. So this is a new environment. A whole foods plant-based diet can help us adapt to all of those new things in our environment. For example, when you look at kidney transplant patients that increase the amount of whole plant foods in their diet, they have a lower risk of rejection in their graphs. And that to me is amazing. You know, the fact that you can be eating a certain way and and actually and actually align that with with your medical therapy and uh, benefit from that. Mm, that's remarkable. I was actually going to be my next question was, can you share some examples of how patients have transformed their health and switched to a plant based diet? I think anecdotal evidence is good, but I think personal experience is, you know, is better when as a as a doctor and as someone who is working with this lifestyle medicine. I think moving away from like theory, because obviously, you know, at the end of the day, our when patients come to doctors or, or health professionals, they are coming for guidance and support and having a, a doctor who is versed in this subject. Because I think there's a lot of people who have terrible chronic illness and they go to a, a doctor to talk and help them work through this. And I guess it depends on where you are in the world, but there's that whole adage of there's a pill for every ill in the Western world. And rather than thinking about what's the actual underlying cause of this illness, we're just sort of covering it over with medicine and drugs, which obviously can help in many in many areas, but then they can also have knock-on effects like side effects. And then you're taking one drug for this and then another drug for that side effect. And it's a slippery slope 
to not only a very expensive life, uh, well, yeah, very costly, isn't it? Depending on where you are in the world, if you have free healthcare or not. And it can be, you know, it can be really challenging for people. But I'd love to understand your opinions and views on probiotics and prebiotics. It's a multi-billion dollar industry, this, these pills and these supplements. Should we all be taking probiotics or prebiotics supplements uh, every day or, or what's your kind of take on them? So my take on probiotics as well as prebiotics is that probiotics have certain clinical indications and I feel that they are best used, again, in disease rather than in health. So for the average healthy person, I don't typically recommend that they take a daily probiotic. I recommend that they eat you know, a few tablespoons of fermented foods a day or include fermented breads into their diet. But probiotics can be useful in certain conditions. You know, for irritable bowel syndrome, we have data to guide us saying that certain probiotics are useful. For inflammatory bowel disease, probiotics can be useful. Uh, in some cases of diarrhea, probiotics can be useful. So there are certain cases where the evidence backs up using probiotics. And same for prebiotics. Again, just going back to the idea that fiber from whole foods is best. And also going back to this idea that when we are talking about health and disease, when we are talking about you know, chronic inflammation and inflammatory diseases, we are not just talking about a couple of autoimmune disorders. We're talking about the majority of our modern killers. When we talk about diet and lifestyle in that context, we are talking about a population-wide diet and we want population-wide solutions. And I don't feel like an anti-inflammatory diet is a dietary lifestyle that's accessible only to a few. I think it's, it's incredibly healthy and accessible to the broad population at large. So they don't necessarily have to buy expensive probiotic supplements or prebiotic supplements unless it is clinically indicated. It's good advice. I'm personally taking a probiotic at the moment because I have, was on a course of uh, rifaximin uh, antibiotics for, for an issue with my gut. So I'm, I'm hoping it will help reduce my irritable bowel so far, so good. Uh, obviously, also, I'm trying to focus on making sure I'm eating a diversity of plants and also keeping stress levels low, which I want to talk to you about in a bit, because of the gut lining sure. is fascinating, having the neurons that are similar to what's in the brain and the gut brain axis. But before we do, I wanted to ch chat a little bit about um, fecal transplants, which are very strange when you think about them, <laughs> taking fecal matter from one human and putting them into another. We wrote an article on Plant Based News a few years ago, it was very popular because everyone was like, what the hell is this? The idea of taking poop essentially from a healthy person, and many of them were vegans, and then implanting them in a, in a person with ulcerated colitis, serious irritable bowel, autoimmune issues. Some AIDS patients were experiencing, you know, almost complete system-wide shutdown, I suppose, and he's seeing huge success with it. But um, I have heard that there, it's kind of a, it's a procedure that should be proceeded with caution because it's obviously not always a, it's not a panacea for all of these ills. And what's your experience with it? Do you know much about it? And um, how effective is this, this practice? Uh, essentially. Sure. I And I do remember the first fecal transplant that I did was in fellowship and the patient actually brought the stool with him in a blender and we blended it up right in the room. And so those were kind of early days. But fecal transplants certainly can be very, very effective in certain clinical conditions. There's data in Clostridium difficile infection, and that's a uh, bacteria that gives you a, a pretty nasty in infectious diarrhea. And particularly, we see this a lot in the elderly in the institutionalized in nursing homes and such. And fecal transplants can be transformative after, after courses of drugs have failed. And so we use it in that setting. Uh, there's some, some early data in inflammatory bowel disease, but this isn't the standard yet. Uh, and so there are certain clinical settings in which we can use fecal transplant. 
but again, you know, we, we have more regulations now and we need to make sure that you know, the donor stool is appropriate, that we, we don't have infectious sources and other issues with, with the donor stool. And, and there are different ways of administering fecal transplants now. You know, we don't necessarily have to blend up stool and then shove it into the colon. You know, there, there are pills we can take. There, there are different uh, things coming down in, in the pipeline in this field. Pardon the pun, <laughs> pipeline. Um, yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because we obviously, we talked about this, these organisms that live within us, we carry them around with us. And when we have illness, they they go out of sync, our body becomes, you know, irrit- irritated and inflamed. And then you can take, you know, obviously, I'm oversimplifying, but you're essentially transplanting some of that microbiome from a healthy person into a into a person with disease, and, and you're helping to facilitate a shift back towards a more equilibrium state but let's right. let's discuss that connection between the gut and the brain there's a there's a gut brain axis a connection what exactly is the gut brain axis and what is the relationship between the gut and the brain in the sense of some medical professionals calling it the second brain why would it be a second brain well just like you have much of the immune system that lives in your gut you also have a mass of uh, neurons in your gut so the gut is indeed functioning like a second brain and and the gut brain axis is actually the gut brain biome axis because a microbiome has so many influences that we are aware of on the gut brain axis. And so this is something that's a bi-directional relationship that's ongoing at all times. And it, it plays a part in many different conditions. In fact, some of the functional gastrointestinal conditions that, that we talk about are, are now known as disorders of the gut brain biome axis. What role does stress play in that relationship between the brain and the gut and the sort of equilibrium and the balance between those two aspects of the body? Well, there are so many different different things going on, and I can talk about it from also an inflammation standpoint, nervous system standpoint. But we know that when we have stress, and this is not the acute stress where you know, if a tiger jumps out in front of us and we get scared and run away or fight the tiger, it's not the acute stress that's that's problematic, but the chronic stress in our lives. If we have a bad boss or a bully at school, you know, the chronic slow going stress. And it's interesting because, you know, acutely, uh, some of these hormones running through our body like cortisol and norepinephrine and epinephrine are actually anti-inflammatory. But with the chronic stress, you actually see an increase in white blood cells. You see an increase in in uh, the early precursors of white blood cells being made in the bone marrow. And chronic stress is indeed inflammatory. And it may be one mechanistic link between you know stress and a variety of chronic disorders, because we know that stress kills. Absolutely. I know that working in vegan media, you would think would be stress-free, <laughs> but uh, seven years. Um, yeah, it's amazing. I'm still here. Uh, yeah, it's um, it's a stress is a tough thing because it creeps up on you and before you know it your whole body you feel it all over your body you know you can have tightness in your chest you have the anxious feelings that come with it and you often feel it in your gut and it it often results in like an irritable bowel or issues with diarrhea and a kind of annoying kind of pain or stabbing pains and it makes sense you know we feel as human beings we're feeling emotional beings and if our gut lining has neurons within it then 
there is it's not it's not a, a huge stretch to suggest that we might be actually feeling things within our gut everything is connected and there is this sort of system oh, where absolutely. we are we're moving around and you know i i do wonder sometimes do we you know neurons obviously by their nature can and and i assume retain memories of some sort and are we remembering things in this area of our body we kind of assume that uh, the human kind of consciousness or the, the human uh, emotional element is all stored within the skull and also there's neurons in the heart too i've learned you know so there is a there's a there's a possible possible trickle down effect one might say of the neural kind of structure and neural pathways that run from the brain to the heart to the gut and also down the spinal column as well so you know the human organism is a fascinating universe and of course there's obviously so much more that we have to discover so i think you know, in the coming years, we're going to find out all kinds of wonderful things about our our friends that live within us. But we'll move on from our internal friend, gar- our friend garden, <laughs> that's not even a thing, and move on to talk about veganism generally and how you kind of celebrate it in your life. You know, do you have any hobbies or passions related to veganism? You know, do you, are you into gardening or cooking or animal rescue? How does veganism as a philosophy kind of exhibit itself uh, throughout your life? So I love to cook. And and I think that this is also something that does not have to be stressful or hard. I, I had a friend this week who, who made uh, three ingredient brownies, and she literally just put a type of sweetener like applesauce or bananas, and, and you get some sort of nut butter in there and some cocoa powder, mix them up, turns into brownies and very short amount of time, much easier to do that than actually go to the grocery store and buy a stack of brownies that are filled with additives and lots and lots of sugar. So there are so many hacks in the plant-based cooking world that, that we can take advantage of, like getting an Instapot, you know, and just being able to make dinner in 10 minutes. And I think that's, that's a world that everyone can just start to explore in order to incorporate those kinds of foods into their diet. So, so cooking is something I, I do really enjoy. And, and I think, uh, it's, it's, Probably the biggest barrier for patients as well, you know, just being able to envision themselves making food for themselves as opposed to just getting food out. Let's turn to your book, uh, A Silent Fire, The Story of Inflammation, Diet and Disease. Talk us through the book itself, its inception and some of the main takeaways that you want uh, readers to to get from your book. I've been fascinated by inflammation for a long, long time now, uh, obsessed with it probably. I had many patients coming into my clinics asking about inflammation, what is the anti-inflammatory diet? I had a close friend diagnosed with a devastating autoimmune disorder. So I really wanted to get behind what is the science behind the anti-inflammatory diet and also what is the science behind inflammation as a cause of disease? Can it actually cause disease? And we've been hearing so much about inflammation in alternative medical circles for decades. And I really wanted to focus on the scientists who are responsible for bringing this to light. So the book just portrays a variety of scientists past and present and the journey that it took to to actually say today that inflammation is in and of itself a cause of disease. We know this to be true. And in cardiology, for example, inflammation is an independent risk factor for disease, as is cholesterol. And we also know today that with all of the nutrition science, all of the microbiome science that we have, we have in our power the ability to make choices that can prevent inflammation from overtaking our bodies, that can help to dampen inflammation, that can help to also reverse inflammation. So we have a body of data that that actually supports this today. And so one of the takeaways that, that I want for uh, folks to understand is that what we're doing in our kitchen, on our dinner plates, in our clinics with our patients, that's connected to a global ecosystem at large that is connected to your health, 
and disease patterns and those of your loved ones connected to the potential for climate change to take hold even more so than it has to date and the potential for other ecological disasters like pandemics and epidemics. Talk us through the perfect day when it comes to food. What would be an amazing day of foods that would nourish our bodies, reduce inflammation and feed our guts? You know, what kind of foods should we be adding to our diet more regularly? And uh, what kind of foods should we be either minimizing or ideally reducing or removing completely? Well, I love to start the day with a green smoothie. I think uh, it's it can be very easy just to toss a bunch of fruits and vegetables and spices, even and herbs into a blender and just blend that up in five minutes. And I think w- one of the things too, is that as we go through a busy day, it's easy to forget about some of these plant foods that get less attention, like those spices and herbs. But some of those plant foods are actually the highest in terms of anti-inflammatory potential or disease preventative potential. So I think a green smoothie is a great place to start. You can sweeten it as much as you like. Uh, I also love to focus on beans and whole grains. I think they get a bad rap, uh, beans and whole grains, because they are seen uh, sometimes as being anti-inflammatory or as a part of an anti-inflammatory diet. But we know today that you know we have many clinical trials, even randomized control trials that show that eating beans, for example, can actually dampen inflammation in your body, can lower your risk of chronic disease. So we need to be eating legumes in all different shapes and forms. And whole grains as well. I think how you prepare your legumes and whole grains is, is important. You know, if we go to the grocery store and and we get refined bread uh, and and uh, desserts, we are eating grains, but we are eating transformed grains. We are eating inflammatory grains. Whereas if we are at home and say we bake a sourdough bread in the ancient tradition, or we buy that sort of a bread at the grocery store, that kind of bread is going to have a very different effect in your body when it comes to blood sugar levels, when it comes to inflammation. And I focus on intact grains as much as I can because we know that the more intact grains you eat, the better for your microbiome because those types of grains offer more fiber and more nutrients for the gut microbiome. So you kind of want to look to steel cut oats, for example. Although this does not mean that rolled oats are bad for you. This just means that if you can try to incorporate more intact grains, that would be even better for your gut microbiome. Can you explain what that what you mean in intact grain and, and what's the difference between rolled oats and steel cut oats? Because I didn't know there was a difference. <laughs> yeah, so so these are these are sort of grains in in their simplest forms. So so when you look at things like brown rice and millet and amaranth and steel cut oats, these are the whole grains. And we're we are not transforming them in any way. We are not cutting them up. We are not pressurizing them. You know, if you if you look at steel cut oats, for example, all you have to do is simply soak them overnight to make them edible for the next morning. Rolled oats also, they are still good for you. Uh, they are a great whole grain food and you know they, they, they do not have as much of a blood sugar spike as say a donut would for breakfast. Oftentimes with food, it's, it's not just about what you're eating, but what you are replacing the food you are eating with. So a bowl of oatmeal, even rolled oats is, is much better for you than that donut. But if you can get to the steel cut oats, offers even more fiber for your gut germs. So that's kind of the difference. And with fermentation and other techniques, you can transform the intrinsic architecture of the food you are eating as well. And that can play an important role for your gut microbes because you can introduce probiotics and you can introduce foods into your system that have less sugar in them and less anti-nutrients. And especially for those of us with food sensitivities, this may mean a greater tolerance to those foods. So some of the folks with non-celiac wheat sensitivity can actually tolerate some of these fermented grains 
much more so than than the other types of grains. That's interesting because I've experienced that myself. I've gone from having pasta, wheat-based pasta, or some kind of um, wheat in in a cake or a or a cookie, and swell up big, big kind of just gut distension. And then I've had a sourdough pizza, which is you know pretty big, and I've experienced no bloating, which seemed very odd. One would assume eating wheat is the same no matter how it's prepared. But I think what I'm getting from this is depending on how the grain itself has been processed or not processed for that matter, it will have a different effect on the on the gut microbiome and the bacterium will react in different ways depending on how that food has been prepared or how it's been altered in some way. It's fascinating. And you mentioned a little bit about fermented foods. Should we be having kefir, you know, vegan kefir, kimchi, kombucha? Should we be having these foods every day as a sort of security, safety of our gut? Should it be a, a, an integral part of our diets or, is it sh- or is it, should it be something we just eat occasionally? I think these are great foods to incorporate every day and it, it, it doesn't have to be a huge burden. Even if you incorporate a few tablespoons of these fermented vegetables into your diet every day, that can be great for your gut microbiome. And then just paying attention to how you're preparing and buying these grains. You know, so for example, as, as you were talking about the whole grain bread in a, in a uh, grocery store versus the fermented sourdough bread, fermentation can really change so many things about a food. So when you're looking to those breads and such, instead of only focusing on the whole grain aspect of it, which is great to focus on, so don't get me wrong there, but also want to focus on the preparation of the food. So a fermented bread is a type of bread that will have very different reactions in your body than than a typical bread and we and we don't also have to talk about solely breads but there are all different types of fermented foods within every single culture and you have fermented uh, grain and lentil patties uh, for example in in south indian culture i mean every culture has its own iteration of fermented foods so learning how to cook in those traditions can also be very helpful Turning on uh, to the subject of antibiotics, there are something that are medicines that are often dished out in in large quantities, depending on where you are in the world. In, in some parts of the world, in one, you know, uh, health professionals are becoming a little more cautious with them. But there are still parts of the world where they are given out like sweets. Uh, not there's not a there's not a careful consideration. I know obviously there's many different types of antibiotics, but how much damage do antibiotics have on our microbiome it, itself? Because obviously we are carrying around quite a lot in our guts. But when we take um, antibiotics, which are antimicrobial does it always have a catastrophic effect on our gut microbiome or is it quite resilient to to certain antibiotics or does it depend on the drug? So taking antibiotics certainly can wreak havoc on your gut microbiome. Yes, your gut microbiome can bounce back. Will it ever be exactly the same? Less likely, especially when you see folks getting courses upon courses of antibiotics. So I always tell my patients, if your doctor prescribes an antibiotic, make sure you actually need that antibiotic. And we need to you know, be talking to our healthcare providers, especially in some of those cases, as you mentioned, where, where, where you feel like antibiotics are just given out like candy. We need to make sure that the risk versus the benefits make sense. Antibiotics are life-saving. They're they are incredible, amazing drugs, but we need to use them as indicated. And if we overuse them or use them when they're not indicated, then we are damaging our gut microbiome without due cause. And the risk-benefit ratio in, in that case doesn't make much sense. And we want to do as little damage to the gut microbiome as possible. So it's not that you know you take one single course of antibiotics and sure, it will change your gut microbiome, but we are resilient 
as human beings, and so is our microbiome. So it's not saying that one course is going to irrevocably alter the rest of your life. But at the same time, we want to be cognizant of using antibiotics appropriately. After that course of antibiotics, you know, as long as, especially as long as you are continuing the dietary and lifestyle factors that, that you have been, you know, with eating lots and lots of these plant foods and treating yourself appropriately, your gut should bounce back. I've had personal experience with uh, reactions to antibiotics. My my dear mother had a some kind of bacterial infection, and she was given a what will they call a, a last chance, last case? What's the word? Last an expression for it, like a you know, and they've tried all the other antibiotics, and they've 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 tried this antibiotic on her, and here and she had a reaction to it. She had a kind of a anaphylactic. Is that the right anaphylaxis. word? Anaphylaxis. Yeah, mm-hmm. she had an anaphylactic reaction, and she her whole body swelled up. She had edema oh. all over her neck and her legs. She she swelled up. I think her body added a, another like five, ten k kilograms. Um, she was in A and E for like seven weeks, and she almost died from it. But isn't it remarkable how these drugs can be completely inert in some people, and then other bodies completely react in different ways? And we don't know what happened, but I think when the surgeon drew blood from her, her blood was kind of like green or something. It had changed color, and it actually had a system wide effect to her body, and it was. It was a very, very scary experience. So I've since then always had a bit of a, I guess, trepidation when it comes to antibiotics, because obviously, as you say, they can be life-saving. But when it comes to medicine, we never really know how our body is going to react to it. You know, you hear stories of young kids you know, dying from from taking ibuprofen, but then, you know, millions of people around the world take it every day and are completely safe. So, you know, you can understand why we now live in a world where many people don't trust medicine, they don't trust doctors, because these kind of cases and these stories, unfortunately, are widely propagated across social media. And it does create a lot of fear. But the gut microbiome and uh, the immune system and the brain, it's all working together to keep us safe and protect us. You know, as I said, sometimes it can feel like there's warfare going on within us. But I think when we nourish ourselves with the right foods, we keep our stress levels low, we drink lots of water, and we care for, for our, our, our friends on the inside, we are setting ourselves up for a life of, of good health and, and, and wellness. It's definitely always a work in progress for a lot of people because it's not easy in the world we live in today with so much junk food and so many things screaming at us from the grocery store, buy me high fructose corn syrup, (laughs) sugar, refined fructose, (laughs) drinks, clarified apple juice, all these things which we know taste great and they you know they fire up the the neurons but at the same time you know they're not doing us any favors but moving on from from that and i'd want to hear what you think about the future of plant-based medicine the future of lifestyle medicine is do you see a growing uh, awareness within the medical community and the general public Uh, how much change have you seen since you adopted this lifestyle over the years that you've been doing it and do you have a sense of hope for for things continuing to accelerate? Because obviously, a diet rich in animal foods has been shown to be a leading driver of many chronic diseases, which is costing health facilities, the health industries, billions and billions of dollars every year in in chronic illness and death and early death as well, preventable death. Uh, we have the answers now. We know that a whole food plant based diet and, and lifestyle medicine works. So why aren't all doctors recommending it? <laughs> I think there there are so many different reasons. And, and first, I, I do want to say that over the years, over the past couple of decades, past few decades, I do absolutely think that the future is bright and that there are so many more folks now, providers, 
practitioners, patients who are very plant forward and who are interested in educating their patients, who are interested in incorporating lifestyle medicine into their clinics. And also patients come in more informed as well with the advent of the internet and, and Google and all of this information at our fingertips. I mean, this was a very different environment than when I was growing up in Indiana and I, I didn't, you know, have Google at that time and I didn't know how to learn about some of the things that I was eating. So we have a lot of information on our fingertips and I, I really do feel like patients are more well-informed and providers are more well-informed as well. And we also have a rapidly changing environment from climate change and all of these other disasters and you know the possibility of a future pandemic uh, as we've already experienced. And we also, we also have the fact that modern chronic disorders are, are increasing many of them are increasing. We see that all of these factors are coalescing and there is a growing awareness in the medical community and outside of it that we must do something to to change. And I think that a lot of folks as well are also interested in reducing the amount of animal foods in their diet, if not entirely eliminating them. I think that, that, uh, that by working together and at least getting many, many folks, as many folks as possible to reduce their animal intake, and others will entirely eliminate them, then you have a world in which we've massively reduced the intake of animal foods. Let's uh, long may that idea and that vision last because we certainly need it. Before I let you go, I always ask my guests this one final question. If you were stuck on a desert island and it was just you and a pig, obviously you're not going to eat the pig because you're vegan. If I could give you one vegan dish, one book, and one music artist, who would you take with you? Oh my gosh, that's a tough question at the... um, (laughs) I would say a curry bowl with brown rice and tofu for the vegan dish. For the book, I would say anything written by Ian McEwan. And, and then the last one was a... Music artist. I've always really uh, loved Duran Duran. So mm-hmm. from the 80s. Okay. <laughs> so, Amazing. Yeah. Dr. Ravella, thank you so much for joining us on the PBN podcast. Uh, it was an absolute pleasure. There's so much more to talk about, but maybe we could do a part two sometime in the future. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. This was a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us, everyone. And this is the PBN podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Lockin. We'll be back next time with more food, fashion, animals, veganism, nutrition, and everything in between. 